1: That's moe, M-O-W-I, M-O-W-I, salmon, dot US, to learn more. You know, I grew up with Vermont farmers who made do with tools they had on hand. A hammer, pliers, uh, and baling twine, of course, for most jobs. When I became a cook, however, I found that having just the right knife, or maybe the perfect carbon steel skillet, made all the difference. And the right tool also added pleasure to my cooking. I truly enjoyed my time prepping, as well as cooking food. And that also goes for a car. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. It's advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. And that includes available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, available front row massaging seats, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Buying furniture is not easy. You want well-designed pieces that fit into a modern lifestyle, yet the look should be timeless. And you want a custom experience creating furniture designed specifically for your space. My suggestion is that you check out Cozy, a North American company that thoughtfully designs furniture for modern living. That's C-O-Z-E-Y dot com. Transform your living space today with Cozy. Visit Cozy.com to start customizing your furniture today. Hi, this is Christopher Kimball. Thanks for downloading this week's podcast. You can go to our website, 177milkstreet.com, for our recipes, culinary ideas from around the world, or our latest cookbooks. Now here's this week's show. This is Most Radio from PRX. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. Today, we chat with Boris Fishman. He's author of Savage Feast, a memoir that spans three generations from the Soviet Union to Brooklyn, New York. Fishman's story begins with his grandfather, a barber and a black market dealer who escaped the Soviet draft in 1943 when he was
2: just 17 years old. So he got on a train and he went off to Uzbekistan. And it was an 11-day train ride, and he had no money in his pockets. He started the train trip in what was called the dog's drawer, sort of underneath the main compartments where they kept the animals. Then he moved up to the roof, and every time the train stopped, he swung down into the windows, pilfered whatever he could, beets, carrots, onions, swung back up, and, and that's how he spent 11 days.
1: Also coming up, we discover Argentina's secrets to a better grilled steak, And Dr. Aaron Carroll and I explore the pros and cons of vegan alternatives, from vegan cheese to chicken nuggets. But first, it's my interview with Gary Wishnatsky, third-generation owner of Wish Farms, a large strawberry operation in Florida. With strawberry picking labor hard to find, Wishnatsky co-founded a company that invented a 20,000-pound robotic harvester. Gary, welcome to Milk Street.
3: Thank you. Yeah, my pleasure to be with you.
1: Before we get into uh, the strawberry business... Let's just set the the stage here. I've read reports that 45% of the U.S. workforce may be replaced at some point, including repetitive office tasks. So we're faced with a world where manual labor is being replaced by robotic labor, I guess, right?
3: Correct, yes.
1: And so we're talking here about the strawberry business and a strawberry-picking robot. I would think, having picked a lot of strawberries or some strawberries in my time, that would be an almost impossible task, right? And could you explain why it would be so hard?
3: Yeah, it's hard. I mean, and it's not going to be impossible. <laughs> it's, there's a lot of things that are impossible, but picking strawberries, I don't believe, is one of them. Uh, it It's difficult because the berries, they don't ripen or get ready all at the same time. So you have to be able to selectively pick and pick only the ripe berries, and you have to pick it on time. And so part of our technology and part of what we're um, working on is also the ability to move leaves mechanically and then to be able to have a vision system that's able to have very good ripeness detection. But then the next thing is to be able to do it at a speed that's commercially viable.
1: So the first thing anybody would think of, or the second thing, would be how to pick a strawberry, which is not like an apple without damaging the strawberry, because you're picking a ripe fruit that's very soft. So how, how do you do that?
3: So the, the claws themselves are, are molded, uh, food-grade silicon rubber, and they're actuated with, with springs, and they're able to open at the right uh, size based on the size of the berry because our vision system is able to um, hmm. detect not only the ripeness, but the mass, and, and to know how far to open. What, what's really cool is it's, it's very much like how humans pick. You, you know, you just, you grab the berry, right, and it you, it's just a little wrist action. So that little twist of the wrist, it, it just, the stem pops right off.
1: So does your machine use artificial intelligence as part of the process?
3: You know, I've heard different definitions of artificial intelligence, and we've actually had a, a debate internally whether or not we are considered uh, AI technology or not. I, I would argue we are based on the definitions that I've read of it. We're using cameras like eyes, and we're using the uh, the brain of the computer to, to determine the ripeness and, and send a claw down to an exact Um, spatial coordinate. So to me, that is artificial intelligence. Are we doing it to its full extent yet? Not yet.
1: Well, maybe it doesn't play chess, but it picks strawberries, which is actually somewhat more useful, (laughs) if you know what I mean.
3: That's right. Exactly.
1: Do you find, uh, are strawberries one of the hardest crops in terms of physical exertion and pain, et cetera, to pick? because it's so close to the
3: ground. Exactly. It's it's not it's one of the harder crops to pick without a doubt cuz you are stooping over to pick them and it's and you're trying to move through the field quickly, you know, it's hard work. There's no getting around that.
1: Do you ever think back, I think your family's been in the fruit business for century or so.
3: Close to it. Do you ever
1: think back and go, "Boy, those those were the good old days and that things were simpler and you weren't dealing with robotics and other things?" Or do you think it's, you know, change is change and it just that's the nature of life.
3: So, agriculture, there's been, you know, trending towards automation for many years. So, this specialty crop area, which is a much higher value crops like strawberries and blueberries, uh, that, that's kind of the last frontier for automation because most of the other big crops like for grain, corn, and wheat and other things have all already been automated. But that's all uh, mechanical automation versus what we're doing with robotics is more precise. There's a big challenge that we're facing, but sometimes when you have a big challenge you come up with a, a big solution. <laughs> so I, I've really enjoyed seeing a lot of the um, innovation and things that have, have come about in our industry. And the other thing I want to point out on the uh, on the human side of this, uh, this labor force that we have is uh, aging and shrinking. But the jobs that are going to come about because of this are going to be better, higher-paying jobs that maybe an older person can do, and younger people will have better opportunities to make more money in, in the future in this field.
1: You know, I read a book recently that said uh, 80 years ago, I don't know what percentage of Americans were on farms, 40 percent, some large percentage. And uh, they said, if you look back at that time and and talked about the future with automation, as you mentioned, with big crops like wheat and corn, you would expect the unemployment rate to go way up because a large percentage of people would no longer be employed in farms. What, of course, happens is the economy changes. there are new jobs, as you just said. And now the unemployment rate is very low. So I think the point's well taken that you lose jobs in one sector and
3: hopefully get better
1: jobs in another, right?
3: Yes, it's going gonna, it's gonna to be a different world.
1: So in your mind, is America going to meet this challenge and things are going to be better 30 years from now? Yeah,
3: absolutely. Yeah, I don't, you know, I've, I've looked at this problem and I, I looked at it a few years ago and I said, you know, there's two ways that this can go. Either we fail and the price of fruits and vegetables, in particular in this case strawberries, are going to be so expensive that they're not going to be as available or affordable to consumers or we can solve this and make fruits and vegetables readily available. You know, I've said many times this failure, this project is not an option for, for us or for our industry. And I I just look at the progress that we've made and how far we've gotten and look at the, the technology where we're at right now and I I feel very optimistic because of that.
1: Gary, uh, it's been our pleasure having you on Mill Street. Thank, Thank you, you so much.
3: Thank you so much.
1: That was Gary Wishnatsky of Wish Farms and Harvest Crew Robotics. It's time for my co-host, Sarah I to answer your culinary questions. Sarah is, of course, the author of Home Cooking 101 and the star of Sarah's Weeknight Meals on Public Television. But first, I have a question for you, Sarah. You trained in France. You've cooked at La Tulipe in New York, a French restaurant. Are there one or two French recipes that are absolutely still part of your repertoire that are just core to your being?
4: Wow. Well, I'd say duck confit. I just love duck confit. And you
1: make it yourself? Yes,
4: I do. And the other one would be, and it's a signature dish from La Tulipe. it's the uh, La Tulipe apricot souffle. (laughs) You know it well. I know it well. I made it at Milk Street and put salt in instead of sugar. And we learned something.
1: It rose beautifully.
4: It did. It rose perfectly, but didn't taste like much. But yeah, those would be two that I make all the time
1: i remember we did that and and i knew you would put salt in instead of sugar but i didn't say anything
4: no you didn't rat me out
1: because i figured because there was a live audience you wouldn't let them know but you came right out and said nope i messed it up oh
4: i know i always talk about my mistakes i have no problem with that
1: you're an honest cook okay let's take some calls welcome to milk street who's calling
4: hi this is corey lee from cleveland
5: ohio how are you i'm good how are you pretty good how can we help you today My mom, she's trying to downsize and was going through some things that she had packed away and found a ceramic pot. It's kind of small and it has um, a lid on it with like a little hole and it was my grandmother's. We think that it might be a bean pot, but my mom doesn't really have any memory of my grandma using it. I was just wondering if you thought that that is what it is, I guess. And then if there are any benefits of Using a bean pot to cook beans, lentils, instead of just cooking them on the stovetop.
4: Where was your grandmother from? Hazard, Kentucky. I ask because there's the classic Boston bean pot, which is sort of round on the bottom and gets smaller at the top and then has a lid. Does it look like that's kind of what it is? It does, yeah, yeah. Well, that bean pot was the original, you know, sort of slow cooker because the idea was that they'd hold even heat, you know, and you could cook your beans low and slow for hours in the oven. They'd come out beautifully. So, I mean, Chris, I would think anything that you would want to cook low and slow, you could certainly cook in a bean pot.
1: I don't know whether a cast iron Dutch oven on top of the stove or a low oven would be that different. I think it would be about the same it's a slow cooker that's all there is to it right
4: but she's got it so what should she do with it
1: cook (laughs) beans in it i don't know what it's a bean pot well
4: Uh, she could cook a stew in it or a soup in it
1: yeah except that you if you have to saute it i mean the thing about a bean pot is you're not going to be sauteing a lot of stuff at the bottom you put the beans in maybe with some kind of oil or fat bear fat if you were (laughs) in maine 200 years ago i mean one thing you wouldn't want to put in the beans is anything acidic the cooking time doubles Yeah, with mustard huh. or tomatoes or something. But uh, yeah, I mean, any kind of bean would be fine in that. I mean, you could use, again, a Dutch oven to do it. But if you just want to use this particular thing, because it's in the family, sure. I would use like a 250 oven, 275. Yeah, low yeah. oven.
4: I would also do something, Chris, that actually I learned from you, which is to... No, wait,
1: wait, hold on. Is everybody listening? <laughs> Could you repeat that, please? Yes. That I learned from... Oh,
4: I did, I did, I did. Which is to soak the beans overnight in salted water, yes. if you can. Yeah. And, I mean, if nothing else, it definitely looks more interesting to
5: serve a soup or lentils or something in than just an ordinary pot.
1: Yeah. I think that sounds great. Yeah. I mean, if you really want to do it, have someone dig a hole in the ground.
4: <laughs> well, I mean, you know... What is it with this hole in the ground? Well, we've all got appropriate stoves. You just use your
1: stove. <laughs> You have no romance about the past.
4: Hey, listen, I'm not somebody who went out hunting like you or still goes out hunting and fishing. I'm, you know, sort of more tethered.
1: Thoroughly modern Sarah. Yeah. That's what we call her around here. All right. Corley,
4: Corley, have fun with it and think of your grandma. How nice. (laughs) Thank you so much.
1: Okay. Thanks for calling. Sarah, now wait a minute. You are a traditionalist in many ways. You're very modern in some ways. Well, this is true. Yeah.
4: You know, when you have training, it's like it's very hard to forget it. And it's very hard to shed it. French cooking. Yes. Yeah. But sometimes I think French cooking is silly. I've stopped using pepper and everything. I blame you for that. Look at this.
1: I'm changing. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think we should take another call before this is a true confession. Well,
4: I don't know. You may Maybe I may have had a little influence on you. You <laughs> never know.
1: Next call. Time for the next call. <laughs> Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling?
6: Hi, this is Elaine from Jenkins Pennsylvania.
4: How can we help you?
6: Well, my question is about the order in which ingredients should be added. I made an herb spiced guacamole. Very disappointing. So now, I add salt, pepper, garlic, spices. Before, I add a dash of oil. It seems to turn out a little bit better. (laughs) I figured the oil might present a barrier to spices in a recipe, and wondered what you would think about that.
1: Well, it's not a crazy comment. I mean, salt will disperse in water, let's say lime juice and guacamole. Much better. Much better than oil. And so if you add the salt before the oil, but with the lime juice or whatever you're using... It'll disperse Yeah, you'll probably get better dispersal than after you add the oil. Your basic comment, uh, the oil acting as a barrier is probably right.
4: But when it comes to spices, spices do better with oil, you know. But what spices are you adding to your guacamole? Salt, pepper.
7: I do add
4: some lime juice, garlic, minced,
6: maybe some pepper flakes or Tabasco.
0: Yeah,
4: but that's all fine. I I thought you were saying something like maybe cumin or something like that. I wouldn't add that to guacamole, but...
1: Well, no. Now, I just made a Gazan version of guacamole, which has a little bit of whole milk yogurt in it and it has cumin in it,
4: Okay. and it has
1: you, sweet paprika in it as well.
4: Okay, how do you add the cumin and paprika?
1: You add very small amounts right to the mashed avocado, and then when you serve, you put a little bit of extra cumin and paprika on top on the, as well. On the top. And some toasted uh, sesame seeds. So it's really quite good. But you're right. You want to add the salt before you add the oil. Yes.
4: Also, I mean, the other thing I wanted to say about salt is people sometimes make the mistake of adding it at the end In many recipes, because they're like, well, some people don't like salt. Maybe you add your own, and the trouble is that salt just doesn't work that way. It doesn't absorb the salt the same way. So I always say, for the most part, you should season as you go along the way. Don't wait till the end, or the salt will just sit on top of whatever it is and taste like salt. It won't become one. But I think back to your. Situation here with the guacamole, yeah, add it to the lime juice and whisk it up, and that will help.
1: But I do have a question. You're adding olive oil to guacamole? Is that because you, you don't have great avocados?
6: Well, it's just a dash.
1: Oh, that's fine. To
6: kind of make it a little bit
4: creamier. Yeah,
1: you're right on that count as well. You see, you didn't need us. You <laughs> you figured it <laughs> out, You, you did actually. everything on, on your own. You did it yeah, right. You figured it, yeah, it out. Yeah, you figured it out. But well,
4: we're glad to have this consult anyway. <laughs> Well, thank you very much. Yes,
1: Elaine, thanks for calling. Thanks, Elaine. If you do have a cooking question you can't solve, give us a ring, 855-426-9843. One more time, 855-426-9843. Or email us at questions at
6: MilkStreetRadio.com.
1: Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling?
7: Hello, my name is Alice.
1: Hi, Alice. Where are you calling from?
7: I'm calling from Danville, California.
1: Uh, What's your question?
7: Well, my question has to do with uh, toasting nuts. Now, all of the recipes always say to toast nuts before you use them, particularly when they're in baked goods, inside baked goods, or just raw on on top. And uh, I buy my nuts in large quantities, and I keep them frozen. Right. So every time I want to use nuts in something, I have to take out a little bit, let them thaw. I usually toast them in the oven. And it's kind of a headache. I wondered if I could toast all of the nuts at one time and then freeze them. And then would the oils still be in a toasted condition after I thawed them?
1: Yeah, you can roast before freezing, and it'll maintain that roasted flavor. But I don't know. What quantity of nuts do you buy at a time?
7: Oh, about five pounds. Wow. Well, that
1: yeah. <laughs> The only thing that's going to be tricky is roasting that amount of nuts in an oven uh, without burning half of them. You have to do it in batches. Yeah, you have to do it in batches and watch it. I, I do it on top of the stove in a cast iron skillet because I can see it. And once nuts start to brown, <laughs> they, uh, they go quickly, go really fast. Yeah. I just did some pistachios the other day and turned my back and that was it. They were so you burnt. you have
4: to set a timer
1: and, yeah. Yeah, so... Um, You can, but I'm not sure if you do it in a skillet. Let's say a recipe calls for a quarter cup or half a cup. I just take them out. I wouldn't even let them thaw. I think you could probably do it right away in a skillet. Brown them takes three or four minutes. That's what I would do. I wouldn't do them all at once.
4: Well, you know, the interesting thing is I always do it in the oven. Because I find that they, for me, they brown more evenly in the oven. I put them in a sheet pan, half sheet pan or But if whatever. you're not
1: going to need the oven for the recipe, that seems like an incredible, it takes 10 or 15 minutes no, to eat the No, but if I oven. was
4: Alice and I was toasting a whole bunch of nuts. Five and, pounds? Yeah. I mean, I do it in batches. You know, it's it's an investment. But then she's got all those. It sounds yeah, like you're a big sure. nut person. <laughs> you like nuts. Is that right? i sure do <laughs> you know you this is an investment of time it seems like you're willing to make i would go ahead and do it but do it in batches do it in the oven in the middle shelf so they toast evenly
7: yeah i agree with you i would do it in batches i wouldn't do all five pounds at one no because you need them in one tray. layer
4: and you need them in one layer so that, that would they be a little hard one, to yeah. handle yeah so you just have to set the timer but the answer is you can freeze them after you toast them, yeah, you, and they you, will taste good. They'll
1: taste great, so yeah. n- no matter yeah, how that's, you that's
7: do the main question I have. Yeah, okay.
1: that'll work fine.
4: Okay. All right, Alice. Thank you.
7: Well, thank you very much. It's a pleasure to talk with you. Yeah. I watch you on TV all the time.
1: Thank you.
4: Okay. <laughs> Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling?
7: Hi, this is Nancy in Brooklyn.
4: Oh, my goodness, my territory. How are you, and how can we help you? Well, I have
5: a Celery conundrum. (laughs) I don't like celery. I know that lots of people love celery, and I also feel that there are some people on my side who don't like celery.
4: Yeah, you got company. I like celery, but lots of people don't. Really? They don't? Yeah. And I'm fine with the people who like celery
5: liking celery,
4: but I don't like it. Well, I don't blame you. And it seems to me
5: that it plays two roles in cooking. Like you make it into a mirepoix and make your soup base out of it, or you use it to be the crunchy bits in a chopped salad like a tuna salad or a chicken salad. So I was wondering if you had a suggestion for a person like me who does not like celery to serve those roles, to fulfill those roles. Any ideas?
4: Yes. Well, I'm going to start with the mirepoix because just a couple days ago, I made my son's birthday dinner, and he always requests a really heavy menu, which is braised short ribs of beef. And it's a recipe I make all the time. involves a lot of red wine. I don't ever look at the actual amounts, but I put in. Usually, I don't have celery, so I don't add it. I put it in this time. My daughter hates celery. I have to tell you, it really stuck out afterwards. So my advice about the mirepoix thing is, don't put it in. Don't bother with it. Just, just do onion, carrot. It's
5: okay to just leave it out.
4: Yeah. No, you don't need it. It's not that important. Well, well,
1: let's get to the key issue, which is tuna salad or chicken salad. Of
4: course. That's where I care about it and I like it. Uh, What would you add instead of celery, Chris?
1: Pepper. Like a bell pepper. Bell pepper. Yeah, that would be the obvious choice. I mean, I, I think in anything else, it's totally unnecessary. But it's the crunch, and you need it with something that's soft, like a tuna salad.
4: Yeah. You know what I've started adding recently, but that's because I just crave spicy stuff? You know those pepperoncini, those Uh Tuscan pickled peppers that come in a jar? But
1: they're not really crunchy. I just bought some the other day.
4: Well, yours were too marinated. They were on this shell too long. uh They're pretty crunchy, and they're acidic, and they're yummy. Nancy, do you know what I'm talking about? They put them on uh, Greek salads. Are they green? Yes, yes. they're green and ripply. Yes, yes. Right. And
0: yeah, they're li- I know
4: what they are. And they're a little bit spicy, but they get a nice crunch. You could also use fennel, but, you know, then you're introducing licorice, so I don't know how you feel yeah. about that.
1: By the way, fennel, I just would like to say, if you make any kind of salad, take a couple small fennel bulbs, you know, trim them off, cut them in half, and then slice them very thin. Unbelievable. Yeah, it is yeah. pretty
4: delicious.
5: What do you say to a... Um... Radish kind of replacement. Oh, sure.
1: That that's an even idea. better idea Brilliant because it's idea. got a better texture. Yeah. yeah you, that's better than pepper.
4: You can also do carrots. I've done that. Yep. Yeah. And then, you know, just put some acid in with your tuna so it's not too sweet because
1: carrots are sweet. But yeah. So the answer to the question is don't eat celery. <laughs> well, Easy plenty, substitutes.
4: There's plenty of substitutes, I think. I like radish. Yeah. I think that's the winner. Or peperoncini.
5: Thank you for so many good ideas. I really appreciate hearing from both you, Chris and Sarah. Okay. Thanks for calling. Thanks, Nancy. Appreciate
4: it. Bye-bye.
1: You're listening to Mill Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. Up next, my interview with Boris Fishman, author of Savage Feast. That's right after the break.
8: This is Jason Perkins again. Just want to say thanks to everyone at Allagash for sharing. You can try Allagash White at home, too. Head to Allagash.com slash locator to find Allagash White near you.
4: For 21 plus only, please drink
5: responsibly. Allagash Brewing Company, Portland, Maine.
1: This is Most Street Radio. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. Three generations, two continents, hundreds of stories. It all comes together at Boris Fishman's dinner table. In his latest book, Savage Feast, Fishman tells the story of how hunger defined his family. His story begins in Soviet Belarus during a time when communist rule left the grocery stores barren. Black marketing was the key to luxury, and being Jewish often led to persecution. Boris, welcome to uh, Milk Street.
2: It's great to talk to you, Chris. Thank you.
1: I just read your book, Savage Feast. The tagline is a memoir with recipes. It's a great memoir. You grew up in Russia— can the United States in the late eighties? Um, let, let's just start with Russia because you you describe life in Russia in great detail. And, and one of your lines in the book that I absolutely love is "cooking is something where there was nothing." And so, talk about that.
2: Exactly. Yeah. So, to start with a small correction. It wasn't Russia then, it was the Soviet Union, and that's actually a a consequential distinction because uh, that accounts for so much. There was very little, sometimes, on those shelves. though There were sometimes plenty in the back, and if you knew the right people and the right doors to knock on, you could have yourself quite a feast. And I happened to be lucky enough to have in my family a person who knew which doors to knock on and what to press into those palms in order to get the good cuts of meat. And so... It probably doesn't even need explaining the degree to which people treasured food.
1: And you also mentioned your grandmother uh, during World War II, you know, living on potato peels. So you you make the point over and over again that um, hunger is just was part of that existence.
2: Right. This is not a book about food. It's a book about hunger, to my mind, because it dictates so much about who we are as people far beyond the table. My grandmother spent 10 months without food, wandering through the forests outside Minsk with a unit of anti-Nazi guerrillas. That shaped her for the rest of her life. She was 15 at the time, an impressionable age, but I think it would be so with almost any age. And she was obsessed with food to a psychotic degree. We always had five loaves of bread in the house. And as soon as they began to go stale, they were all tossed out. Other Soviet housewives used them for breadcrumbs or for stuffing, not her into the garbage and my grandfather was dispatched to the bread store five more loaves you know like some people respond to trauma by hoarding by waiting for the day when it'll happen again and then other people respond by being profligate by acting as if that day will never happen again she was the latter but she was just obsessed with food in this inverted way. And it, it really it resonates through the generations. She would never allow my mother to stop eating. My mother would never allow me to stop eating. And the best thing I can do for my half-American daughter is to somehow transcend this. And you'd, you'd think it would be time 75 years later. But these things are inside me. You should see me at table. I cook for two hours and eat in two minutes. <laughs> I'm still my grandmother's grandson. So
1: your family thought about emigrating in the 70s, did not, uh, and then finally left in 1988. And so there were some interesting points in the book. Uh, The Soviet Union was letting people emigrate to Israel. uh, And so you'd have fake relatives there, but you'd actually end up somewhere else, right?
2: That's right. So, you know, the Soviet Union could not stand the embarrassment of Soviet citizens voluntarily leaving for the great imperialist enemy, the United States. And so a ruse, a charade had to be drawn up where, look, they're Jews, and in, this, in the very sort of limited, essentialist Soviet understanding of these things, uh, if they're Jews, their primary loyalty must be to Israel. They must also have family there, so we'll let them go there. Now you understand nobody had any family in Israel. If anyone actually paid attention to the history, our people didn't immigrate to Israel. However, it was a way out. And these agencies sprung up in Israel to invent relatives for you (laughs) who, after having lived 40, 50, 60 years of their lives quite fine without you, were suddenly afflicted by the need to reconnect with you and wrote these official-sounding invitation letters inviting you to Israel. And that's what created the, the diplomatic possibility. And then once you got out, got past the border, got to your first sort of document processing point, which was Vienna, all of a sudden, unexpectedly, you had an unbelievable change of heart and realized that, after all, it is America that you wanted to go to. <laughs> Conveniently, there was an American consulate there, happy right. to process your application, and so it happened.
1: So let's get to your grandfather. The grandfather living in Brooklyn was the one also who was a barber for a while?
2: Yeah, he he was a, he was a barber in, in Minsk, exactly, by the train terminal.
1: And that was sort of the base for him to trade goods and sort of delve into the black market.
2: Exactly. On the face of it, he's only a barber. But he's a barber by the train terminal. And so he gets to his chair at seven in the morning and the night trains start rolling in. And you've got Armenians coming in with shipments of cognac and you've got Uzbeks coming in with shipments of watermelons. (laughs) And before they conduct their business of the day, they need a shave. Maybe they need a haircut. Maybe they just need a drink from the stash in the back. He would never take money. He would simply say, well, what have you got? And so he would begin the day with one item he didn't need, like watermelons. And so throughout the course of the day, watermelons become a set of silver spoons, become a set of vacation vouchers, become a cut of particularly good pork. And by the end of the day, he's turned pewter into gold.
1: It was also a story about him riding on the roof of a train. And when uh, the passengers would get off, he'd swing down and steal their food.
2: That's right. So my grandfather was supposed to be drafted in 1943. That's when he turned 17. And if you were drafted in 1943, your chances of survival were not very high. And he'd already lost so many in his family that he decided to try to hold out for another year. So he got on a train, and he went off to Uzbekistan, which is which was quite far from where the front was. And it was an 11-day train ride when he, ha- he had no money in his pockets. He started the train trip in what was called the dog's drawer, sort of underneath the main compartments where they kept the animals. Then he moved up to the roof, and every time the train stopped, he swung down into the windows, pilfered whatever he could, beets, <laughs> carrots, onions, swung back up, and, spent, and, and that's how he spent 11 days. And, of course, that was only the beginning of the adventure. There was all sorts of things he got up to once he got to Uzbekistan. So he ends up in Brooklyn, uh, your grandmother
1: dies, and he runs into a woman who ends up doing the cooking, Oksana. Could you just talk about her?
2: Yeah. So Oksana is um, a woman from Western Ukraine. She came to this country in 2004, and they met only because his usual home aide had to take the day off, and Oksana was the sub. And these my grandfather, by this point, had been in America for 16 years, but he may as well have never left the Soviet Union. He lived in a Russian speaking neighborhood, read Russian newspapers, ate Russian food, bought from Russian food stores, watched Russian television. Um, It was this incredible singular bubble. So she doesn't speak English. Neither does he. They were made for each other. She left her family behind in, in, in Ukraine. He lost my grandmother. We had moved away to New Jersey and Manhattan to him unconscionably far. He was, he was an orphan as far as he was concerned, also a capital guild tripper. And these people made a family for each other. And she took care of him until he passed away just over a year ago. And at this point, Oksana is a member of our family. She taught me how to cook Ukrainian food. I went back to Ukraine with her. Um, yeah, at a time when our family numbers were dwindling, she increased it by a very critical unit.
1: So you had a time in your life, uh, you were heartbroken, you were depressed, you end up working in a restaurant briefly. And then in the kitchen, you, you find a restaurant kitchen in an unusual way. You say it, the restaurant kitchen is a place of great joyous hate. <laughs> Which I kind of liked.
2: <laughs> it's um, I had just finished a very long book tour and I was desperate, desperate for a break. Some kind of experience that used my body instead of my brain. And so I became a prep cook and I had this motley crew of fellow Russians and Ukrainians in there with me. And it did take me a moment to realize, but it just gave them such tremendous pleasure to hate on everything all the time. They hated each other because nobody was moving fast enough. They hated the servers because they didn't come pick up the dishes while they were hot enough. They hated the owners for always bursting in and giving them instructions. And eventually I realized that none of this was a problem. This was was the lifeblood of the place. And I think um, I came to appreciate it very much. And then you meet Jessica, the love of your life, and she
1: meets your parents and you write, she's given to the kind of close embrace, even with strangers, that makes a Russian person check his billfold.
2: (laughs) I just (laughs) love. Jessica couldn't look less like me and like all of us. She was a bookshop owner who came to this restaurant because it had music every night and she Sometimes moonlights as a singer, and she sang there on Thursday nights. I'm a writer who is moonlighting as a prep cook. And Soviet people, by virtue of that homogeneity that I referenced earlier, their default reaction to anyone who doesn't look or act like them is profound skepticism. And here was this mm-hmm. Viking who my, my parents simply didn't know what to do with her. The great irony. Um, And a lesson that I've so enjoyed my parents uh, reluctantly learning is that Jessica is far more like them temperamentally than I am. And over the years has become, I think, the child they would have always preferred to have in my stead. That, that,
1: That often happens
2: in marriage, by the way. She's become a kind of buffer that often makes it possible for me and my parents to focus on that, which is most connected and best among us, because there's lots of other stuff. Immigration really phrase your connection. They've stayed Soviet in a lot of different ways. Um, I, too, by the way, but in different ways and in and, and key others. I'm an American. I've had to do things which, ironically, they encouraged me to do to become an American adult that have caused me to drift away from them. We sometimes have a difficult time having a conversation. Jessica, ironically, is that bridge. You mentioned
1: Borodinsky bread.
2: Uh, (laughs) A morning bread
1: slightly charred on top and coriander seeds to resemble grape shot. (laughs) (laughs) Could you just talk about that for a second?
2: This is probably apocryphal, but the story goes that after the Battle of Borodina, uh, a general who had been killed, his wife, invented this bread as a kind of morning bread, M-O-U-R-N-I-N-G. Um, Borodinsky bread. Well, I'm getting goosebumps talking about it right now. It is, for me, the epitome of all Russian food. It's It's a sourdough rye, and that's exactly what it tastes like. It is denser than any bread I've eaten in America. But there is just, you know, a quintessential something about the taste that for me represents my childhood, where I come from. To this day, I mean, speaking of my grandfather, he never, ever sat down to a meal, right? He had he had a fork in his right hand, and he had a slice of Borodinsky in his left. And that was used to shovel whatever was on the dish toward the fork, and he took periodic bites of it. It was an essential aspect of every meal.
1: Do you still eat the food of your family, of Oksana, of your past, or like everybody else, it's Korean food on Monday night, it's something else Tuesday night, Is something you just do on holidays?
2: No, the, there's definitely some variety, of course. I made some North African meatballs the other day that I was very excited about. But God, we just, we, we light up when it's a, a Russian night. Jessica has fallen in love with herring. And herring with fried potatoes served on Barodinsky bread is is a ritual <laughs> in our in, in our household. Aksana taught me this one dish. It's it's called Banish in in Ukrainian. Um it's it's what shepherds make up in the mountains when they take their flocks up there for grazing. It's it's basically polenta. You cook cornmeal in a combination of sour cream and milk and then shred some feta on top with some sautéed wild mushrooms. It comes together in 15 minutes. And, you know, on a busy weeknight, what a deliverance that particular dish is. Mm. I will tell you this, that we have a four-month-old, and uh, two days ago we fed her solid food for the first time, and it was banish. And she took it down very happily, which made us very happy.
1: I've had, I've had a little less luck with feeding my young kids, but maybe you're off to a better start. Uh, Boris, uh, thank you so much for, for being on Mill Street.
2: It was such a pleasure. What a great conversation. Thank you, Chris. Thanks for having me on.
1: That was author Boris Fisherman. His latest book is Savage Feast, Three Generations, Two Continents, and a Dinner Table. Fishman tells the story of his grandmother who spent 10 months outside of Minsk during World War II. She was 15 and in a constant state of starvation, living off of potato peels. When she finally made it to the United States, she hoarded bread five loaves at a time. So what we hunger for in childhood defines what we crave as adults. Perhaps that's why 80% of millennials think that cooking meals at home is now a good way to live. They grew up with parents who didn't cook, and now they crave home cooking. You know, I really like that future. Less texting, more cooking. Right now, I'm heading into the kitchen at Milk Street to chat with J.M. Hirsch about this week's recipe steak with chimichurri. J.M., how are you? I'm doing great. You recently came back from Argentina. I was there three or four years ago, and we both found the same thing. They cook their steaks, their meat very differently than we do here, which was a big surprise. It was a surprise,
10: and what I took away from it is that we work way too hard when we're grilling steaks. In Argentina, well, first of all, beef is a lifestyle there, it's not just a meal. And they take their time with it, and this is what kind of really surprised me, is, you know, we're used to cranking up the grill, throwing a steak over some blistering heat, taking it off, and letting it sit and rest. They go the opposite way. They take their time with it. They put it over very, very low heat, and they ignore it for about an hour. Maybe they turn it once. For an hour? For right? an hour more. Actually, I saw them go for much longer than that. And I was just really surprised, because I expected when the meat reached the table, that this is gonna be way overcooked. But it was just the opposite. It was perfectly tender and perfectly cooked from core to the edge.
1: So the low heat means the outside doesn't get overcooked Right. by the time the inside gets cooked.
10: Exactly. And, you know, I don't know that they would use this term, but they were doing... What we know of as the reverse sear, where they slowly cook the meat at a low temperature over very low coals until it's perfectly cooked throughout. And then, and so they use these Parisias, these grills, these massive grills that are like the size of a car, and the grate lowers and rises. And when they're happy with how well cooked the meat is, they lower that grate much closer to the coals, and they finish it with the sear,
1: exactly. So they also served it with a chimichurri sauce, which was also revelatory.
10: This blew my mind. So the first restaurant I went to, they bring this little glass of sauce to the table, and it was bright red and flecked with green. And I said, what is this? They said, That's the chimichurri. And I said, well, it's no chimichurri I've ever seen, because, you know, we think of chimichurri as this kind of green cilantro-like pesto. And this was nothing like that at all. It was balsamic vinegar, paprika, chili flakes, garlic, dried oregano, oil, and salt. And that was it. And it was bright red. It had pops of heat and acidity and freshness. And it was so good, I couldn't believe it
1: you eat it for breakfast, too? I did. (laughs) You ate it three (laughs) times a day. And so anything else? Do they season the steak before they cook it?
10: Well, okay. So this is one area where I was kind of disappointed in Argentina. Because they tend to use a very coarse salt. I mean, much coarser than even our kosher salt. And I noticed that when they would season the meat, they would just s- tons and tons of salt on it. And I was thinking, whoa, that's going to be inedible. But actually, all the salt was bouncing off because it was just too big. And the chef there, Gaston Raviera, had picked up a technique in France where he used a very fine salt. And he mixed it with a little bit of sugar and a little bit of nutmeg, mm-hmm. ground nutmeg. And I thought the nutmeg was a little bit of a squirrely choice. But it turned out to be delicious. It didn't add kind of nutmegginess to it, but it enhanced the kind of savoriness of the meat. It was fantastic. That was the one we adopted.
1: So sugar, salt, nutmeg is a rub. Cook yes. it very low and slow. Finish yes. over high heat for a sear. And then a chimichurri sauce, which is not a green pesto. Not a green pesto, but it was delicious. Jam. That trip was worth every dollar we spent on it. Thank <laughs> you.
10: You can get this recipe for steak and chimichurri at 177milkstreet.com.
1: This is Most Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. Coming up, Dr. Aaron Carroll and I explore whether vegan alternatives, such as vegan mayo and cheese, are better or maybe worse than their conventional counterparts. We'll be right back. You know, I grew up with Vermont farmers who made do with tools they had on hand. A hammer, pliers, uh, and baling twine, of course, for most jobs. that wherever you go, you'll never go without. And that includes available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, available front row massaging seats, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. You know, wonderful pistachios have become my go-to snack. Now, I could list all the health benefits. They're a good source of protein, fiber, and unsaturated fats. But for me, flavor comes first, and that's why it's pistachios, not peanuts, in our household. Wonderful pistachios come in a variety of flavors and sizes, including sea salt and vinegar, chili roasted and smoked barbecue. Check out wonderfulpistachios.com to learn more. That's wonderfulpistachios.com. You know, I love salmon so much that once in a while, I actually drive up to the Matapedia River in Quebec to go fly fishing. But that's a whole lot of mileage for very few fish. The rest of the time, of course, I purchase salmon at the supermarket, and most of what I buy is indeed farm-raised. Mowi Farm-Raised Salmon offers restaurant-quality salmon right to your plate, and they have been in the business for over 60 years. It's available in seven different origins, Norway, Scotland, Iceland, Ireland, Faroe Islands, Canada, and Chile. Each has its own distinctive taste and texture. They offer raw salmon fillets, but you can also purchase pre-season portions or cold-smoked bites. And Mowie Salmon is available ready to eat with cold-smoked ultra-thin slices as well as center-cut loin. Please visit moeysalmon.us to learn more. That's Salmon.us to learn more.
0: Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row?
9: And it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home.
7: Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.
1: I'm Christopher Kimball, and you're listening to Milk Street Radio. Now it's time for some culinary inspiration from one of our listeners.
5: My name is Veronica Johnson. Seattle, Washington, I have a cooking tip on Brussels sprouts. Cook them or steam them until they're al dente. Drain and let cool. In the meantime, toast some caraway seeds in some butter. Cut the Brussels sprouts in half. Place them face down into the caraway butter and reheat them with a little bit of salt and pepper. They are yummy. Enjoy!
1: If you'd like to share your own culinary tip on Milk Street Radio, please go to 177milkstreet.com slash radio tips. One more time, 177milkstreet.com slash radio tips. Next up is Dr. Aaron Carroll, who takes a different approach to thinking about diet and health. Dr. Carroll, how are you?
9: I'm good. How are you? I'm good. I thought we might talk today from something actually a listener wrote in about. Uh, He wanted us to talk about vegan alternatives, things like vegan chicken nuggets or vegan mayo or cheese, and whether or not these are healthy foods or things that would be necessarily better for you than the regular alternatives. That's an excellent question. So... There's certainly nothing wrong with being vegan, and many people certainly enjoy it. And if you're interested in the ethical aspects of a vegan diet, I have absolutely no argument about that. If you're interested in the environmental aspects of a vegan diet, there's a lot of good data to show that uh, you know going that route might be overall better for the environment. The problems lie when we start to talk about the actual health impacts of a vegan diet. Now, it's entirely possible that you can eat a vegan diet that is incredibly healthful, that will be better for you than eating uh, a diet that is chock full of meat, but what people do worry about is if just saying a diet is vegan makes it healthier, and the answer there is an emphatic no. Um, A lot of the alternatives, things that, that people are trying to buy that mimic regular food, things like vegan chicken nuggets, for instance, can be made without using any animal products, but often the way that those things get made require the use of things which are not necessarily good for you. Why do
1: people continue to want to eat fake substitutes for the real thing? You can eat a vegan diet without having fake chicken nuggets, right?
9: Totally agree with you. In fact, it's like this is where I'm I would always come down. It's like, you know, salad can be delicious. Vegetables can be amazing. I don't understand the need to constantly try to replace regular well, I shouldn't say regular food, but food that contains animal products with something that does not often. The things that uh, you know that we're using to to do that are more caloric. They can contain nutrients that we don't want, and again, they're they're just heavily processed. And the one thing that studies show again and again and again is the the single probably best thing that we could do for our diets is to reduce our uh, reliance on processed foods and try to go with more natural ingredients to begin with.
1: Yeah, and if you look around the world, you find that. Virtually all cultures, at least up until recently, meat was a very small part of their diets because it was expensive. And so they developed ways of eating grains and legumes and vegetables in particular where they were the star of the show and the meat of the fish was not a side dish but a relatively small part of the diet
9: absolutely true. Except, you know, it's, it's ironic in the United States, however, even, you know, 100 years ago or so, we were consuming a fairly large amount of meat The the kind of meat that we're consuming has changed over time. Uh, our reliance on red meat has gone down. Our, our adoption of sort of eating chicken has gone way up. Um, and it's it's fascinating to watch even sort of the meatless substitutes that are gaining ground in the market these days are still all aiming at ground beef, uh, in the idea. And people are talking about, well, maybe these will take over and it'll reduce our reliance on, uh, on beef in general and the cow production will go down. Unfortunately, that doesn't turn out to be true because most meat is sold for steak and we have ground beef because, well, that's what's left over once we carve out all the good cuts of steak and they want to use that. So trying to replace ground beef is not going to reduce our reliance on cows. And it's like, until we actually start cutting into steak, We're not going to reduce how many cows we're raising and slaughtering each year. And until we actually start getting a chicken, we're not going to make a real dent in in our animal use much at all, because that's, you know, so much of our meat consumption is chicken.
1: How much in the last 10 years, my sense is beef consumption has gone from 79 pounds per year per person to 70 or 72. It's gone down maybe 10%. Is that right?
9: yes our reliance or how much red meat we're consuming has been dropping and and one of the things i was even talking about in my book is that people have been hearing the messages about how saturated fat and our consumption of red meat can be unhealthy for us they've been they've been reducing that but they've been replacing it with more fish, with more chicken, and even with more pork products with respect to white meat. So overall meat consumption has not been dropping as, as quickly perhaps as red meat consumption. Um, and when we're talking about people who are strictly vegetarian or vegan, the percent of people who really stick to the diet in the United States is still quite low. Even people who call themselves vegetarian, let alone vegan, are still still consuming a decent amount of meat or, or animal products. Well, vegetarian in mind only, right? <laughs> But I but again, I think, you know, your your comment was the right one. It's if you want to be healthy about this, the rules are the same for vegans as they are for people who are not vegans. You want to stick as much as you can to real ingredients, real food, cook for yourself as much as possible. Know what you're getting into. Don't go for processed foods. And if you are buying fake foods that are made to look like foods that contain animal products, of course, they're they're processed. They're not necessarily good for you.
1: Well, I think we need a new food pyramid, which is about what's important in terms of health and food. At the top of the pyramid would be don't eat processed foods.
9: So Brazil might have the most elegant nutritional guidelines that I've seen of any country, and that is basically how they do it. Um, Number one recommendation is, you know, limit high processed foods as much as possible. The second one is like limit, you know, lightly processed foods less than you would high processed foods, but limit them. And it's really cook as much with regular whole ingredients as you can. And that's almost the entirety of it.
1: Dr. Carroll, thank you very much. Words to the wise as usual. Uh, Vegan diet is great, but try not to eat processed vegan foods. Thank you. Thank you. That was Dr. Aaron Carroll. He's the professor of pediatrics at Indiana University School of Medicine, also a regular contributor to the New York Times Upshot column. Earlier in the show, I spoke to Gary Wishnatsky. In Florida, Wisnatsky invented a robotic strawberry picker, which made me think about the robot I would invent. I want a robot to whisper quietly when I'm wrong. I want a robot to tell me when not to argue with my wife about things I can't change. I want a robot to remind me to say thank you. I want a robot to tell me how ridiculously lucky I've been in life. And most of all, I want a robot to remind me to put down my iPhone and play with my kids. In other words, I need a robot to remind me to act like a human and not a robot. That's it for this week's show. If you tuned in too late or want to binge listen every single episode, you can download Milk Street Radio on your favorite podcast app. To learn more about Milk Street, visit us at 177milkstreet.com. You can find all of our recipes, watch our TV show, or order our latest cookbook, Milk Street Tuesday Nights. We'll be back next week with more food stories and thanks, as always, for listening.
5: Campbell's Milk Street Radio is produced by Milk Street in association with WGBH. Executive producer Melissa Baldino. Senior audio editor Melissa Allison. Producer Annie Sinzabaugh. Associate producer Jackie Nowak. Production assistant Stephanie Cohn. And production help from Debbie Paddock. Senior audio engineer Douglas Sugars. Additional editing from Vicki Merrick, Sydney Lewis, and Haley Fager. And audio mixing from Jay Allison at Atlantic Public Media in Woods Hole, Massachusetts. Theme music by Chubub Crew. Additional music by George Brendel Egloth. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is distributed by PRX.